Um, Today's passage is one of those keystone um, revelations and teachings about the church, and I'm very much looking forward to Pastor Tyler unpacking it for us this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16, verses 30 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he, said, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one he was the Messiah. Thanks be to God. Good morning, good morning, church. It is good to see you. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And I, uh, it is a gift to me that you all are here on a, uh, a holiday weekend. I was joking with Hepzibah back behind the divider. Not at all what I was expecting, but look at us, church. We're here, ready to hear. So uh, thank you. Good for you for being here. And honestly, this is a great weekend to be in church. Because as Hephzibah said, we are uh, reviewing and working through scripture that is foundational and central to the Christian faith. And so I think there's a, some really exciting truths that we'll unpack this morning, and I'm glad that you are here with us. Uh, thank you. I'd like to start our time this morning with a question, and the question is, is short, but it's complex, and the question is this, how do big things happen? How do big things happen? And I'm not talking about kind of those little things that feel like big things, right? Like, uh, like finally getting the oil changed even after that little tag's been nagging at you for a couple months or, or scheduling that teeth cleaning even though the six months has turned into 18 months, right? And you're feeling the shame. Or maybe that's only me. But I'm not talking about those little things that, that feel like big things. I'm asking about like big things. How do big things happen, right? How are, how are movements launched? How are companies revitalized? How are nations changed? How are centuries-old policies reversed? How do, how do those big things happen? It's a question that sociologists and researchers and business people and leadership experts, they've all, they've all attempted to answer, and I'll be honest with you, there are all kinds of responses. Some folks have said that the, the secret to getting a big thing to happen is goal-setting. And others have said that big things happen when you do the little things right. And it was Margaret Mead, the, the renowned anthropologist, who answered the question this way. She said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. See, Mead suggests that big things happen when thoughtful, committed people get together. She said that People, not plans, are the real force behind successful endeavors. She implied that who is behind an effort tends to matter more than what the effort is. And Mead's not alone in that conclusion. Leadership guru Jim Collins uh, talks about the importance of placing who before what, the importance of building a good 
team before launching a bold mission. Uh, you can read about it in his book, Good to Great. Collins tells the stories of CEOs that are faced with very difficult challenges. And he said the most successful leaders are those who, when things are going south and stuff is turning bad, resist the temptation to immediately change plans and resist the temptation to immediately try to assemble a new strategy right in panic. He said the most successful leaders are the ones that say no to that but instead try to assemble a good team, right? They place who before what. Colin says the secret to making big things happen is who before what. And I think that's a great mantra for us this morning. Who before what. I think that's good advice as we engage this text because as I studied this text this week, this deep, deep, deep text that gives all kinds of clarity to both who the Christian faith is also all about, but also what the Christian faith is doing in the world. This, this primary text, when I studied it, there are two points that Matthew's making in this little section of Scripture. And the first point concerns a who, and the second point concerns a what. And I think as, as we work our way through it, we've got to remember, and I'll try my best to remember, and, and will you remember too, that who goes before what? That as we unpack these two amazing truths, that who matters most, who makes all the difference, who comes before what. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, or if you want to follow along with this morning's message, you can make your way to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we'll be. And if you're, you're new to Christianity or new to Bible study, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It looks like it's maybe three quarters of the way into the paper Bible. Uh, it's a narrative account of Jesus' life that was recorded by an eyewitness to his time on earth, the disciple Matthew, who traveled with Jesus and listened to Jesus and saw what Jesus did. And Matthew wrote it all down and recorded it here for us. And so this morning we're going to be observing an actual historical interaction that Jesus had with his disciples and one that Matthew recorded. And this, this interaction, it's absolutely pivotal for us understanding who Jesus' closest followers thought that he was and what Jesus is about in the world, what big thing he's up to, a who and a what. And it all begins in Matthew 16, verse 13. And here it is. Let's dive in. It says, Now when Jesus and his disciples came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that the Son of Man is. Now, if you're not familiar with Matthew's gospel, you might miss this, but when Jesus is saying, who do you say the Son of Man is, he's actually asking a question about himself. You see, the Son of Man was a title that Jesus gave himself. It's rooted in the Old Testament, and it finds all other kinds of references throughout Scripture, but this title, Son of Man, it's the way that Jesus referred to himself when he was on earth. And it was his way of saying, I, I'm up to something special, right? He picked this Old Testament name. I, I've got some spiritual significance. I'm someone unique. I'm worthy of paying attention to, right? So the Son of Man, this title that Jesus adopted, it's, it's a title that folks knew him by in the countryside. And so Jesus says, who do folks say that the Son of Man is? And he's asking, who does everyone out there, who do they think I am? Who am I? Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And we can see from the disciples' reply that this, this title, or, or Jesus, this idea of Son of Man, this is something that people interpreted widely. There wasn't great consensus. Folks were confused, right? Because they say, they say, some say, verse 14, you're John the Baptist. 
Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You see, folks knew there was something special about Jesus. And so they start comparing him to these great figures in Jewish history. Some are saying he's, he's John the Baptist, other Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They know there's something different about Jesus. They know he's someone unlike anyone they've ever met. They know that there's something special. They get that part of Son of Man, but they're, they're not quite sure what it is that makes Jesus unique. There's not real consensus about who at his core Jesus is, and so there's all kinds of theories that are floating around about, well, well maybe he's this, and what if he's that, and I think he could be, right? Everyone had their own theory, but no one could say for certain what made him unique. And I've got to be honest with you this morning, I think that that historical circumstance isn't too far off from today's current reality. Maybe I could be wrong, but I would say that still today there are many theories that swirl around about who Jesus is and why he should matter and what we should think about him. And I think even still today, if folks are intellectually honest, they'll say, they'll say Jesus' influence can't be denied. Right? I think most folks get that he's, he's a person unlike any other person. He, he's changed the whole world, right? I think folks can admit that, but there's still, maybe on another thing, well, well, why should we care? What makes him unique? What makes this figure that's not, I mean, it stands out from human history, what makes Jesus special? And again, there's, there's all kinds of answers. Some say that he's the ideal social activist, right? And others suggest that he might be a, a great professor, right? A master teacher who had good stories about the way that people should act. Others insist he was just kind of a really good guy who rose to prominence at the right time and some people wrote about him and he, and he helped others and, and now we all know who he is, right? There's those that have suggested that he might be a, a pattern for political revolution. There's some that have said that he's maybe a bit delusional and that quite honestly his, his legacy, if you look at history, has done more harm than good. There are all kinds of theories about who Jesus is and, and why we should care and what he's about. I'd contend there was confusion then and there's confusion now. It's almost as if folks are still saying, uh, John the Baptist, maybe he's Jeremiah, maybe he's Elijah, right? There's so many theories and into that swirl of opinions, into kind of that debate about who Jesus is or why he matters, Jesus asks another question of his disciples. And here he gets personal, right? Jesus looks into the eyes of those who have been following him, and he says in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? You're right, Jesus says, there's, there's confusion out there about who I am. And there's all kinds of theories out there from folks that are watching from a distance about who I am. You're right, there is, there is speculation. Maybe they get that I'm special, but they don't know why. They know I stand out, but who, know, but, but who do you say that I am? You individually, you personally, who do you say that I am? And church, this is a unique question in the book of Matthew. We've been studying this book for seven months now. Pat yourself on the back. And I, and I gotta say, as we've gone verse by verse through this book, we've never come to a moment like this yet. It hasn't happened. We've seen Jesus select his disciples, empower his disciples, correct his disciples, rebuke his disciples, but, but we've never seen such a pointed question, who do you individually say I am? This is the first place that it appears. Right? Jesus is getting personal. This is a, a unique moment in the gospel, and, and, and I think that this question, 
this question, who do you say I am, this question that pops out of the text if we're, if we're reading the whole book in context, it's a question that, yes, is centuries old, and it's something that Jesus asked his disciples at a moment in history, but I think, too, it's a question that he's still asking today. I think this question has a lot of relevance. Who do you individually, personally say that I am? And I've got to ask you this morning, how would you answer that question? If Jesus were standing here this morning and he looked you in the eye and he said, who do you say that I am? How would you respond? And I want you to be honest. I think you owe that to yourself. What do you really believe about Jesus? How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus to you, really? It's a tough question. And I think when Jesus asked it a lot like this, it was silent for a while, but then someone speaks up. And it's Peter, the most outspoken of all Jesus' disciples. He, he dares to respond. And Peter, standing there with the other disciples around, opens his mouth and he says, verse 16, You are the Christ the son of the living God. And I imagine there's like a hush all around because Peter just said something really big. Peter just looked at Jesus and confessed to him. He said, Jesus, I believe that you are both the Christ and the son of the living God. And that, that, is, a, that is a big, big answer. So to understand that fully, we're going to unpack both parts. First, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this word Christ, you've got to understand that contrary to everything you've ever been told, it is not Jesus' last name, right? I, that was a joke, church. Help the pastor out. <laughs> it wasn't great, though. I don't believe it. But it's not, there's no driver's license for Jesus, Jesus Christ, right? It's not Jesus' last name. The word Christ, it's a title, okay? It's a, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word that means Messiah or anointed one, or chosen one. This idea of the Christ or the Messiah, it's something that prophets had spoken for generations about this great leader who had come to redeem God's people and restore them to glory and freedom. And so when Peter says to Jesus, you're the Christ, he's saying, I believe you're someone unique in all of human history. You're, you're not like the other prophets. We've had prophets before, but there's never been a, a Christ before. There's only one Christ. There's only, there's only one Messiah. When Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying, I believe you are that individual that in all of God's plan has a special role to redeem and save the world and, and bring glory and freedom back to his people. So Peter first says, Jesus, you are, you are the Christ. And then he says, and the son of the living God, which is Peter's way of saying, Jesus, there's something different about you. You're divine. You're divine. Because right? it's certainly, I mean, you think about Peter traveling with Jesus, he would have certainly known that Jesus was human, right? Because Jesus gets hungry like other people get hungry. He gets tired like other people get tired. He's, he's fully human. He has a, has a human mother. He you know, is born the way that babies are born for all human centuries, right? Like Jesus, fully, fully human. And Peter gets that, but he says, you're the son of the living God, which is his way of saying, gosh, you're, I think you're also divine, I think that more than being fully human, you're certainly human, but you also are God. Because if you're God's son, you're like God. You're made of that same, same divine substance. There's something about you that sets you apart as divine. You, you are certainly Christ. And you're also God. You're the son of the living God. Peter's bold declaration, it has, it has two parts. And what is astounding about what Peter says is that he gets it exactly right. 
Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter, like getting a perfect score on a test, said, you're the Christ and you're the son of the living God. I mean, he nailed, nailed, nailed this answer. But more than just being intellectually correct, which he certainly was, and more than just being theologically correct, which again, he was right, Christ, son of God, that, that is exactly right. But more than being that, I think Peter also, he believed what he said. There's a deep conviction in his heart. If you know anything about Peter, you know that he tends not to think before he speaks and he tends to say what's on his mind. Maybe like some of you. I know like myself, right? And so if Peter's willing to say that you're the Christ and the Son of God, and if he's going to say it in that kind of moment, he believes this deeply. He's convicted by it. And so again, I have to return to that question. Who do you say I am? And I want to ask, how would you answer that question? Not merely intellectually, though that's important, not merely theologically, so that's also important, but, but in your heart, kind of deep in your bones, at that, at that gut level, what do you believe about Jesus really? Who would you say that he is? It's a, it's a very important question, and it's a foundational question for the Christian faith, and I believe it's a, it's a question that... that uh, leads to faith and results in flourishing and understanding from humans. I mean, before you can understand anything more about the Christian faith, quite honestly, before you can understand what it's all about and what it's accomplishing in the world, you've got to get that who first. Who is Jesus to you really? And Peter gets the question right. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. So Peter says this, and then Jesus responds to Peter's declaration. And I think Jesus' response opens the door to the what of this morning's passage, right? We said who before what. So Peter nails the who. He gets the who exactly right. And then Jesus responds and starts to tip his cards a bit about what he's up to in the world. So let's look at Jesus' response. Verse, verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter correctly identifies who Jesus is, and then Jesus replies with a celebratory response. His response it has three parts. First, he says, man, Peter, blessed are you for getting this, right? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which is kind of like Peter's full legal name. Because if you remember, Peter's name before he met Jesus was Simon, right? So he was born Simon. And then bar Jonah is a way of saying like the son of Jonah, right? Have you heard like a bar mitzvah before, like for Jewish boys, the birthday party? So bar is like son, Simon bar Jonah, that's uh, Simon, son of Jonah. And it's kind of the same way that like when we have fancy parties, we tend to put like our full name, maybe like a wedding invitation or a graduation invitation. It's like Tyler Cherneski son of John and Tanya, invites you to attend, right? So, so he pulls out the full name and he says, blessed are you, Peter, this is a special circumstance. I'm using your big name, man, because you got it, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then the next part, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus saying, great job, Peter, but I want you to know that the fact that you got this all together, the fact that you got it exactly right, certainly your experience is data that you could use. Certainly you've heard me say a lot of good things. Certainly you've had a front row seat to my life and ministry on this earth, but it, but it was my Father in heaven who brought these pieces together for you and flipped on the light switch, right? So great job, but God put it together for you. 
And then this third part of this response, this one gets me. He said, and it's on this rock that I'm going to build my church. Jesus moves from Peter kneeling the who and starts to talk about what he's up to, and he, he starts to talk about this church, this church. Now, I want to spend a little bit on this phrase, uh, you are Peter and it's on this rock, I'm going to build my church, because this is a phrase that if you're familiar with kind of church history or church doctrine, this is one that a lot of people think about and debate and wonder what Jesus really means. There's been so many books written on this. Uh, you, you can find a lot of information. Here's the essentials that you need to understand. Uh, Peter, the name Peter, sounds a lot like the Greek word for rock that is Petros. So Jesus is doing a pun which makes me feel better that I'm not the only one with bad jokes on a Sunday morning, right? So, Peter, uh, or, yeah, so Jesus has this pun. Your, your name is Peter. It sounds like Petros. So on this rock, Petros, I'm going to build a church, right? So he's making this wordplay. I, I think what he's saying, there's some that wonder, if is Peter the foundation that he's building it on? Is Peter's declaration the foundation that Jesus is building the church on? And, and we certainly have an opinion here at Christ Community, but I want to leave that this morning by saying, if you want to talk more I could talk a long time, and I would love to chat with you after service, but I think, having read through lots of that stuff this week, I think sometimes that, that debate on what exactly, where, who, what, how is the foundation, what's it, it can miss the big point. The big announcement is this. Jesus is building a church on a sturdy foundation that is the confession of who he is, right? Jesus is building a church on a sturdy foundation that nothing can stand against, that's the main point of what he's saying there. I'm going to build a church, and even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I mean, how strong does something have to be for nothing to be able to prevail against it, right? Jesus' big point is, I'm going to build a church. And now even to get what he's saying a little further, that word church there, I'm sure we hear church, and we think of you know, maybe here's the church, here's the steeple, right? If you're in Sunday school, or old buildings, or cathedrals, or uh, different traditions, or a potluck, or committees that meet for a long time, right? We hear church, and certain things come to our mind, but when Jesus uses this word church, it's actually a very specific word in the original language that's talking about assembly, it's a gathering. It's the kind of word you'd use if you saw a bunch of folks rallied around a cause. You'd say, oh, that's a, that's, in, in, in the language, you'd say a church, right? So when Jesus says, I'm going to build a church, what he's saying most precisely is, I'm going to gather a group of people around something common, and I'm going to be that thing in common. I'm going to gather this group of people, and nothing will stand against them, right? I'm the who that they're gathering around, and what it is, this church, it's going to be unstoppable, and I've got to be honest with you, at the time that Jesus makes that statement, it's probably good that there weren't any historians around, or analysts, or different political scientists, right? I'm sure if there were betting men and women within earshot of Jesus, they probably would have said, there's zero chance that's going to happen. Because what you've got to remember is when Jesus makes this statement, there are no political freedoms guaranteeing a right to free speech or free assembly, or free religion. When Jesus makes this statement, he's in the heart of imperial Rome, a republic turned empire under an absolute ruler, Caesar. When Jesus makes this statement saying, I'm going to build an assembly that lasts and nothing will stand against it, he was saying in a political climate where Rome had absolute authority, if there was anything unstoppable, it was Caesar, right? Not some commoner, not some carpenter, 
not some guy who wanders around with a group of followers. I mean, I'm sure to outside listeners, this seemed absurd. This was a preposterous thing to say, I'm going to gather an assembly that nothing can stand against. And if it didn't sound preposterous when Jesus first said it, I'm sure that after he was betrayed by a friend, and after he was condemned by the crowds, and after he was taken to his own execution by that empire that folks knew to be unstoppable, man, if you didn't think it was strange when he first uttered it here at Caesarea Philippi, I'm sure that as he's being crucified, no one believed there would be any kind of assembly around this man. He's just been killed by the empire. This is what's absolute Caesar. That's what's going to last. This is the, the greatest civilization the world has seen. This man's going to build a, what, a church, an assembly. But then something happened that I'm convinced of, something that changed everything. I think, I think Jesus rose from the grave, and when he did, he proved that Peter's statement, you are the Christ and the Son of the living God, he proved that that was true. Because who else could predict their own death, die, and then raise from the grave, right? This is someone unique, divine, son of the living God, and someone with a special purpose, the Christ, right? Jesus rose from the dead and proved that Peter's confession was true. And then after he rose, groups of people that believe in him started to gather early in the morning on the first day of the week. And they would sing hymns to Christ, and they'd share letters written by their leaders, and they'd renew their vows weekly to generosity, and to sacrifice, and to love, and to service. And, and at these gatherings of these people, these first Christians, there were all sorts of folks. There were men and women. There was young and old. There were masters and slaves. There were folks from every socioeconomic level, every race, right? It talks about Greeks and Jews and Romans. I mean, they're all coming together into this gathering. And they're united around the conviction that Jesus is Christ. And because they were united around this powerful who, this Jesus raised from the dead, they were able to live without fear. And so even as they were persecuted and even as they were resisted, they, they stayed the course. And like their master Jesus, they loved their enemies and they prayed for those who persecuted him. And even under the heavy hand of Rome, they remained committed and devoted to one another and devoted to the good of their city and to the good of the world. And over time, these gatherings of people, this small church, they, they grew and they grew and they spread and they spread. And that's how we get to where we are today, that across the world right now, there are people gathered in the name of Jesus, right? In small villages, in big cities, in, in massive cathedrals, and in art galleries like the one we're in. There are people assembled and united of all ages and all backgrounds and all socioeconomic levels around the truth and the confession that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the son of the living God seems like his statement that he'd build a church that couldn't be stopped. It seems like we're seeing that come true before our own eyes. And so if you're here this morning and you can honestly answer that question, who do you say I am from Jesus by saying, hey, I believe you're, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of God. If you're here this morning and you can answer that honestly with a yes, I want you to know that you're, you're part of that church. You're part of that assembly that Jesus has been bringing together for centuries, right? that sacred assembly. And I think if that's you, again, that, that leaves us with a choice this morning. And the choice is this, will we love the church that Christ has built? Will we love the church 
that Christ has built, because if this morning's passage teaches us anything, it's this. Jesus is all about the church. When you understand who Jesus is, you come to see that what he's building is a group of people united around the commitment that he's the Christ, right? That's why throughout the New Testament, the church is called Jesus's bride, right? Jesus is in love with the church. And and if you want to love what Jesus loves, you've got to love his church. This is where many of us stop and ask, really? The church? Because here's what I know and here's what you know. There there are a lot of people that are interested in Jesus. There are lots of people who who are passionate about Jesus who don't get too excited about his church. And I'll be honest, I think many times they have good reason. There's a lot of people whose experience of of the church, the people that Jesus has assembled together, there's a lot of people whose experience of that group hasn't been too great. There's been folks that were raised in churches and then wound up being really hurt by those churches. There's been folks who've been picketed and protested by churches. There's folks that have tried churches again and again, but they've never really found that community that so many other folks talk about. There's been folks whose uh, churches have tried to use their own authority and twist it a bit and push them down. I mean, there's all kinds of experiences in church that I can understand why there's some people that might say, well, I'm, I'm passionate about Jesus. I'm just, just not crazy about the church. I, I get that. I get that, and let me be the first this morning to say there is no perfect church, right? The folks that Jesus draws to himself, we're all very needy and desperately need him to do work in our life. That's that's why we come to him, and so you get all those people together, and and sure, terrible things happen. There there is no perfect church, and I I work in a church, and I'll, I'll tell you, they don't exist, but here's what I will say. Here's what I know. Despite of all that, I think passages like this And passages like ones that we'll find throughout the New Testament, written by Paul, one of Jesus' early followers, it it just seems inescapable to me. The Bible is so clear. You've got to love the church. If you want to love what Jesus loves, even though the church is not perfect, you have to somehow, someway, you've got to love this church. And so how do we love the church that Jesus loves? Well, here's what I know. It starts local. It starts local. If you want to love the church that Jesus loves, you have to get involved in one of the local gatherings of believers that Jesus has assembled and drawn together where you live. You love the church that Jesus loves by diving in to a local church. Now, this is where I want to be super clear because it could get awkward. I'm not saying you have to get involved in this local church. Don't hear me saying this morning that the Bible declares you have to be part of Christ's community, right? We are well aware that we are one of many churches in Kansas City united around the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm not saying you have to get involved in this local church, and there's no surprise sign on the dotted line after a really emotional song coming around the corner, right? That's not going to happen. That's not where we're headed this morning, But, but here's what I do know. I know this is a good church. I like this church. It's a great church. I think if you're looking for a church, it's one worthy of your consideration. But this is not the only church. And I don't think Scripture teaches you have to join this church. I just think it says that, man, if you're going to love the church that Jesus loves, you've got to love a church. There's got to be a local church that you're a part of and that you decide that's the place where I'm going to be known and honest with who I am. 
That's the place where I'm going to pursue deep relationships. That's the place where I'm going to ask for help when I need it. That's the place where I'm going to serve as there's need. That's the place where I'm going to be committed, whether it's financially or with my time or with my effort. Again, it doesn't have to be this church, but there's got to be a church where you say, that's where I'm in. I think that's how we get to love the church that Jesus loves, by being a part of that community, however imperfect it might be, but by choosing to commit. Our hearts are knitted together, and the Bible talks about us becoming one body, sort of mysteriously and magically in Christ. And I think the way that that happens, again, is by committing to a local church. It, it starts local. There's got to be a local church that is your church, where you commit to belong, where you commit to be known, where you commit to being thoroughly involved and invested. So I want to end this morning by just making that, that plea for you to find a church, to love the church like Jesus loves. And just with this reminder that what astounded me about this passage when I studied it this week is that who Jesus is gets tied so closely to what he's about, that who he is, the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God, gets tied so closely with the church. It's almost as if the church is this Savior's plan A for changing the world, for doing something really big, right? The who comes before the what. Who Jesus is is a Savior who's unlike anyone the world has ever seen, right? And he's going to make all things right, but what he's left behind is a church. And as he's designed that church, it's to be the hope of the world that transforms things through and through and makes a massive difference. He's the who before the what, and we are invited to be a part of this what and make that difference in our own, or experience that difference in our own lives and make that difference in the world. So this morning the question remains, will you love Jesus' church? Will you commit to a local church knowing that church won't be perfect, right? But if you find the perfect church, let me know and I could send a resume. <laughs> but will will you love his church? Will you commit to following him and being faithful in the same way that he loves his church? Will you be one that says yes to that invitation too, right? Let's pray. And Lord, thank you for leaving a church. Thank you for knowing what we need and knowing that we, we deeply need community and knowing that the world deeply needs change and if change is going to happen, it's less of a what and it's more of a who. So you are the ultimate who who by giving of your own life began change that is still flowing out and taking place in this world through your church. And so, Lord, if we've been hurt by a church this morning, I pray that you could soften our hearts towards us and let us grieve any real hurt that's been done and let us seek help and process that wounding with others. But, Lord, let us, would you give us the strength to maybe for the first time in a while look for a church that could be our church? And, Lord, if we've... Uh, we recognize that we've maybe neglected some of our church or we, we haven't been as big of a part as we'd like to be, Lord. I pray that you'd give us uh, the wisdom for where to involve ourselves and the kind of the courage to ask uh, church leaders or other church members if, if they'd be willing to pull us along and help us be a bigger part of a church that we've chosen as our home. Because, Lord, we recognize that your church is a good thing and a good gift. and We want to love it as much as you do, so would you help us to do that? We know we need your help. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.